Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the sun and moon theory of politics, decoherence, and how this will affect the parties moving forward. I know there's been a focus on the United States lately. Also, I understand that there's been a large focus on the United States recently. But as I said when I started this podcast, I go where the stories are. The most dramatic collapses or rapid changes in global politics is no longer happening in Eastern Europe, is no longer happening in the Middle East. Instead, those dramatic escalations in information warfare, in partisanship, and even possibly in political violence are happening in the United States. And given everything we've talked about in these past few episodes, that should be no surprise to you. So, just as I covered Eastern Europe and gave everyone a warning with those stories, and just as I covered Lebanon, just as I've covered other stories in the Middle East and around the world that are warnings for our own countries, the same is true when I'm covering the United States. So hopefully it'll be something that's useful to you beyond just covering the biggest stories on the global stage. Instead, the principles at play will also translate if you ever see the same problems arising in your own countries. So without further ado, let's get started. The sun and moon theory of politics is widely attributed to a political scientist named Samuel Lubell. The theory essentially states that there tends to be one dominant party, the quote-unquote sun party, where policy is really driven, where the internal debates and media coverage drives the overall political landscape, including that of the other party. That party would be designated a quote-unquote moon party, one that gets elected by responding to the sun party, taking advantage of disappointments of the current leader, or with some other reactionary or compromising politics. Meta-histories in the United States, and global politics as well, have confirmed that this theory tends to be fairly well predictive. Of course, we should always be wary of confirmation bias and other statistical errors that may be made. However, the multiple studies over large sample sizes and occurrences around the world do provide a high likelihood for this story being accurate and predictive. You see similar patterns not only in American history with figures like Reagan, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and FDR, but also in global politics, including in India, including in the aforementioned Middle Eastern case studies, including in even the contemporary experiences of Eastern Europe, as well as, of course, the other Western democracies. Moreover, we should base our understanding on parties based on three major motivating factors. The first, and surprisingly least influential one, is policy. This mainly affects swing voters or quote-unquote independents who don't have a solid connection to one party or the other. These are the voters who would vote based on things that would directly benefit them. Often, they're more economically minded and focus on quote-unquote kitchen table issues. Issues that would directly change the circumstances of their life and are often more simple and straightforward to implement. However, as study done by Jonathan Haidt in his book The Righteous Mind, as well as from other economics, political science, and sociological work, there tends to be a coalescing not around policy, but instead around the quote-unquote moral foundations. Several core values that tend to be highly predictive 
much more than policy or economic circumstance to how a voter will actually cast their ballot. These values are caring, fairness, loyalty, authority, sanctity, and liberty. With the first two values, caring and fairness, tending to be held by voters across the spectrum, but particularly held in high light by those who are liberal or progressive. Loyalty, authority, and sanctity, on the other hand, tend to be held by those who are more conservative, particularly those who are socially conservative. Finally, liberty is a value that is held in high standard in specific cultures, namely Western democracies, although there have been a gradual expansion of this value to other cultures as time progresses and globalization does that work. If you want to understand more about how these specific values are measured and what applications they create, then look for Jonathan Haidt's work, particularly the book The Righteous Mind. This tends not only to be the determiner for individuals, but instead the determiner for entire networks. This means that those connected by organized groups, such as churches and unions, tend to communicate with each other very frequently, tend to be organizing structures, and therefore hold similar political views. Taking this viewpoint, this is not only a determiner of an individual, but instead of those around them. That is, that the moral foundations of those in a community are actually more important than those in an individual, even if you have an outlier who otherwise belongs to a very conservative church, but are more perceptive to caring and fairness, they may still nonetheless vote conservative. Similarly, if you have someone who is very high in loyalty, authority, and sanctity, who is part of a left-wing union, then they're likely going to vote for the left-wing party as well. However, this pattern poses a serious threat as demographics become increasingly polarized over race, gender, degree, and geography. These increasingly polarized coalitions and demographic self-sorting deprioritizes the moral foundations, reducing the grip of ideology and instead giving increasing weight to the party structure, to the party media, and to party power brokers. This leads to what I call the coherence and decoherence theory, which lines up very well with the evidence presented in the Sun and Moon theory by Samuel Lubell and others. This outlines a process in which ideologies cohere and decohere around those core values. Looking simply at the connection between the rhetoric used by parties on the left and the right in those very same meta-studies, as was done on the Sun and Moon theory, there tends to be a disconnection from many of those moral values to the actual rhetoric of the quote-unquote Moon Party, whereas the Sun Party tends to have a dominant ideological base, which lines up their policy with their moral foundations in a very coherent and straightforwardly understandable way. One good example is the quote-unquote party switch in the United States, in which a post-civil rights era alignment occurred. First, Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, creating strong favorability in the African-American community and also built upon the quote-unquote Great Society program, in which economic progressivism once again appealed to African-Americans and other minorities, given that they were disproportionately poor. However, the rhetoric and the strategy done by both Lyndon Baines Johnson 
and some older members of the Republican Party then proceeded to decohere. Many Republicans were still appealing to more progressive values, and many Democrats were still appealing to conservative or even tribalistic values. Then you saw a decoherence based on ideology and based on many of these moral values. What followed was a realignment. The Southern Democrats shifted strongly towards Republicans with the quote-unquote Southern strategy that once again emphasized those conservative moral foundations and also used vicious rhetoric that went much farther than simply emphasizing those appeals and instead going into things like racism and segregation. Similarly, the Democratic Party began a shift towards embracing more liberal values, namely caring or fairness, or in the Democratic Party's eyes, creating broader social programs that would lift up those who were in the most poor circumstances. This decoherence continued without any real fundamental ideology developing on either side, until Ronald Reagan, who united including libertarians, those who may be less prioritizing of authority but highly prioritize liberty instead, social conservatives who do have the traditional emphasis on loyalty, authority, and sanctity, as well as quote-unquote foreign policy hawks, those who believe that America should be assertive around the world and have a strong military presence, which once again prioritized those conservative values. This recoherence and concentration around the latter four values, loyalty, authority, sanctity, and liberty, gave Reagan and the ensuing coalition a much stronger ideological appeal, because they were once again in synchronicity with these values, instead of having a muddled ideology that didn't necessarily line up. This meant that they were able to make much stronger fundamental appeals, connections with the quote-unquote base of the party, who very much decided if they were going to vote at all based on these types of emotional and moral appeals. This led to the Democrats becoming solidly the quote-unquote moon party, with Bill Clinton acting as a compromise candidate who embraced many of the values of Reagan and only promised to move in a slightly different direction. However, this didn't last very long. At the end of the George W. Bush presidency, there was an economic collapse, and this threw many of the Reagan values into a state of disarray. While this certainly doesn't explain the entire ensuing election pattern, one strong focus that we can take is the focus on geographical sorting. Although there was much more of a priority of ideology at that time, at least on the conservative side, there was at the same time a sorting of power into those cities that were highly dominated by liberal or progressive thinking. This meant that those with a conservative moral appeal, those who had strong beliefs in loyalty, authority, and sanctity, even if growing up in cities, would still be under that network effect of those who are highly liberal in that city, possibly becoming adopted into the Democratic Party and helping to decohere along ideological and moral lines. Similarly, those with more liberal values, once this geographic polarization began, who were born or stayed in rural areas, then proceeded to be more influenced by these network effects and become more conservative. 
you could see this as the social libertarian wing in the present. Those like Rand Paul, who may be more in favor of drug decriminalization and other moderate social positions, while still holding very conservative economic positions. This is in line with many of their own personal moral foundations, however it does not cohere very well with the social conservative wing at all. Similarly, the authoritarian wing of the Democratic Party, or those who might consider very far on the social left, tend to highly prioritize in-group loyalty, and tend to prioritize authority on a top-down hierarchy, which is anathema to many of the traditional liberals who are maintaining control of the party and are considered to be the quote-unquote centrist wing. So, even while there's an appearance of increasing partisanship, increasing ideological divide, this isn't actually a question of moral foundations. This isn't a question among fundamental appeals, at least not on a party-by-party -party basis. It may be on a faction-by-faction -faction basis, but what is really going on is that there's an escalation in animosity towards the other side, not necessarily based on those fundamental moral values, but because of power. You see, the most dangerous theme that you can see in these meta-studies with regards to the shifting between coherence and decoherence is that when you have a coherent ideology, you can advance goals that are net positive for your entire coalition by shifting the priority of your moral values. So if you're someone who prioritizes loyalty and authority more, then maybe you would shift towards investing more in the military and your entire base would be more or less satisfactory with that. Similarly, if you were someone who had liberal values, then you would shift towards creating more free speech laws or similar protections, or you would expand broader social programs. However, when you have a decoherent party, the strategy simply doesn't work, because regardless of which moral priorities you lean into, the decoherent factions of the party, those that don't actually agree with the traditional moral values, will always revolt and will be strongly disturbed by this. However, because of network effects, because of other political realities, they won't actually change to the opposing party, as you would expect from those moral values. Instead, what you see in political party arrangements like these, where essentially two moon parties exist that are both reactionary, both based on opposing the quote-unquote enemy, and both united more in opposition than in moral similarities, you get a priority on power. This is because the only way to actually benefit everyone in the coalition is to seize more power, to seize more resources from the other side. Of course, during times of economic prosperity, this isn't always necessary, as you can preside over a good economy and people will be satisfied. With the slowing economy of the 2000s, and especially of the 2010s, this simply wasn't working. So there was an emphasis on power. This not only resulted in power being wielded on the governmental level, such as by Mitch McConnell using every lever possible to him to deny justices for the opposing party and to have more members of the court appointed by his own party, but also of centralizing of economic power, where there was an increasing priority on drafting candidates on the Democratic and Republican sides that were more able to actually raise money for the party and to buy more advertising power to have more organizational structure, etc. It was no longer fully about 
the broader appeal, but instead there was a very distinct, very organized scramble for power. What makes this situation in time unique, however, is that that power extends now to a third field. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you can probably guess what that field is. Of course, it's media. Moreover, the modern media not only has the power to misinform, but also the advanced tools of information overload, using things like social media and mass media to create pathologies, deluges of information that gives a very powerful emotional appeal, that gives a very powerful conditioning for people to hate the opposing party and to align with the favored party. This process is exactly what gives rise to conspiracy theories like the election fraud conspiracies, QAnon, or the Russian racial conspiracies. This gives a polarization not along ideological lines, not along moral lines, but instead on lines of fact or fiction. There is an ability for media to manipulate information in order to create a completely different set of facts depending on which party they're trying to support. So this power grab can go much further and much longer than was occurring in history. In history, there was an eventual prevalence of a sun candidate, one that could unite one party or the other once again through the power of their appeal to moral foundations and the shifting of those people who held those fundamental values back from one party to another. However, when there is a full disconnect from reality, from the extremes, and particularly from the decoherent factions of the left and the right in the United States, then this becomes increasingly difficult. The reunification along moral lines becomes increasingly averse since those who may have similar moral beliefs but are in the oppositional party don't even have access to the very same facts that you're trying to make an appeal based on. Instead, the game of power remains cleanly fixed, with increasing escalations towards grabbing power in the political, economic, and media levels. Moreover, this is going deeper into education, it's going deeper into technology, and into some of these very core ideas that should not be manipulated for political purposes, that actually drive a greater productivity engine than what would otherwise be distributed over politics on the left or the right. These central ideas, the ideas central to public education, the ideas central even to post-secondary education, to research, are all ideas that are more beneficial to the entire population if not messed with politically. However, since it is essentially the only place left to grab further power, this is where you see politics going. It is a beast that will consume anything it touches, even if that actually destroys the prosperity engines for a given country. So what can we do? We can hold out hope for the de-escalation that I described last episode, though from early signs this doesn't seem to be yet happening. However, the most important thing is what we can do on the ground. Not just sharing information, sharing this podcast, sharing other ideas that you yourself may have. Those are all great, and I encourage you to do that this time just like every other time. What you can also do is to organize, to connect with those around you, and to connect with those who share the same moral foundations beliefs as you do. You can take the moral foundations test online. You can ask your friends to do so as well. Maybe share a pool of results anonymously. And to build 
that ideological coherence once again. Because the most dangerous and violent periods have not actually always been ideological polarization. Instead, partisan polarization tends to be much more dangerous because there are no limiting principles in those cases. Moreover, this new wave of polarization along reality itself is of course much more dangerous than anything the United States has seen before. So I cannot emphasize it enough, but each of your individual organizing efforts, each of your efforts to share the podcast, to give information to those around you, to those who have a fundamental emotional connection to you, to those who have that ideological or moral similarity, is what will get us out of this. It is what can be immediately done, and it's something that you should do even if you live in a country that is not the United States. Once again, I see this program first and foremost as a tool for vaccination against disinformation, for an establishment of core principles, of core verifiable and provable information, including mathematical techniques, psychological understanding, technological competence, etc., that enables people to go past many of these fallacious beliefs, that goes past many of these infectious conspiracy theories, and instead understand the principles at play.